expository preaching, so we moved through, and I was, uh, ended up being blessed with a, an interesting passage of Scripture today. And uh, <laughs> Yes, exactly. And in preparing for it, I thought back to a quote that I had read from the medieval writer and uh, pastor, St. Augustine, who said that in parts of Scripture, the teachings are so shallow that lambs can wade, and in others, the teaching is so deep that elephants must swim. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to get wet today. So um, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation, the 17th chapter. And why are you doing this? I have an interesting riddle that my daughter Jessica came home with a few weeks ago. What does a dyslexic, agnostic, insomniac do all night? Well, they sit around and they worry about the existence of dog. Now, while this might be humorous, we all know that the day when someone can plausibly claim to be an agnostic, or even less plausibly claim to be an atheist, is going to come to an end. And I suspect that Bertrand Russell spoke the true meaning for most atheists when he said in his debate with um, the Jesuit priest Copleston that I do not want God to exist because I want to do what I choose to do without being bound by the existence of an absolute moral authority. And as we're going to see today, we're going to be given a behind-the-scenes look at man's historical struggle against those boundaries. And we're going to look at this world as it truly is from God's perspective. And we're going to see that some of us, oftentimes unconsciously, but many times consciously, bend the rules a little bit here and there so that we fit in in this present age, in this Babylon. So if you will, follow along with me. Uh, we'll read through the 17th chapter. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters and whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in scarlet and purple and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations of the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction." And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, 
and is, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they, are the, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw in the, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. In many ways, we could just go back and read verse 14 again. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of Lord and King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. But God has seen to inspire John to write this entire chapter, and it will be to our benefit to understand it. So let us ask God to bless our time together studying this word. Dear Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God. We are all creatures who deserve your wrath because we are sinners. Our attitudes, our actions, our inactions constantly violate your holy law. But you have been gracious and provided us a means of salvation through your beloved Son. I ask this morning that you would bring us even closer to you as we look at this culmination of the battle between your Son and the city of man, Babylon. Bless this time that we have with you. In the name of the Lamb who reigns victorious forever. Amen. In life, labels don't always tell the truth. And many times, what you see isn't really what you get. So we need to be very careful. I want to take you back in time about 70 years to the summer of 1941. America's economy was finally recovering from the stock market crashes of 1929, 1933, and the depression or the recession of 1937. President Roosevelt was finally convincing over the big objections of his State Department and over a reluctant Congress to give arms to England. Finally, the economy was coming out of this depression that had lasted for 12 years, and the country was in a euphoric state. Lots of things were going on that summer. It was just a glorious summer in many people's minds, and in some areas, some very special things happened. In one of those areas was baseball. On May 15th, Joe DiMaggio went one for four. For the next 57 games until the middle of July, he had a hit in every game. That's a major league record that still stands today. It's interesting to know that DiMaggio actually had a 61-game hitting streak while he played in the minor leagues. But if something good was going on with the Yankees, you know the Red Sox had to have something special going on because we couldn't have it just one way. And true to form, 
Ted Williams batted 406 that summer, another record that has not been broken. But the country sensed that this time of peace, this time of wonderful enjoyment was coming to an end because a dark cloud was descending upon Europe. Hitler's forces had conquered much of the continent. The Blitzkrieg had left much of London in ruin. And it was during the hitting streak of Joe DiMaggio that Hitler and his allies lined up four million men on a 2,000-mile front and invaded Russia. During this time, if you were a gypsy or an intellectual or uh, a Jew living in Hungary or in the Balkans or in Greece, you may have gotten a knock on the door with an invitation, which actually was an order, for you to pack your stuff, to pack everything up, because you were going to be relocated to a more productive land further east. And you have to keep in mind, during this time, you couldn't text your friends, you couldn't go read the blogs, you couldn't go to gestapo.com and see what these people were talking about. <laughs> you really did not know other than what you were told. News travel very slowly, usually person to person, and occasionally you would see a newspaper. You probably had no idea, if you put the first slide up, you probably have no idea that in the last two years, the Nazis and their allies had covered, had conquered everything in blue, from Norway to North Africa, and that they had begun to invade the area in green. So you really didn't know who these people were, but you did what they said, you packed your valuables in suitcases and in boxes, and you boarded a train. You were a little suspicious because the train just wasn't very nice, it was very crowded, but soon you arrived at a peaceful small town in occupied Poland. You arrived in the ancient little town of Oswikum, about 30 miles west of Krakow, and the train stopped at a building, beautiful red brick building, 20 or so on the campus, looked like a nice place. You just weren't sure what was going on. There may have even been an orchestra out front playing Wagner or playing Mozart when you arrived. And as you got off the train, you noticed a sign. You didn't speak German. You didn't know what the sign meant. It says, Albert Mach free. So you ask what it meant. And you were told it means that work sets you free. Now, as most of you probably know, this sign hangs at the, begin at the entrance to a camp that was a work camp at that time, and it was in its transition to become the horrible death camp that the world knows as Auschwitz and you had been moved with your family to this place. You had been deceived. And as we will see today, a much larger thing has been going on throughout eternity. Man has continually been sold a bill of goods that work will set you free. We have often bought into that lie, and we will see that lie exposed for what it is today. In the first two verses of the chapter, you, you can turn that off, thanks. The first two verses of the chapter we read, then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Once again, we see the seven mighty angels who, contain the seven, who carry the seven bowls, the completeness of God's wrath on earth. We saw last week that the seventh bowl really ended man's opportunity to seek God's gift of salvation. 
clearly the language here is symbolic. It was written both for the benefit of the first century Christians to whom it was addressed, and it was written to our benefit as well. But as we will see today, this is not a physical harlot, as you've already guessed, it is symbolic, but it's a symbol of the corruption of God's means and purposes. It is like so many false things do. They take what is good, they are changed to something that is evil. This is a system that lets men worship what they really want to worship themselves. All Scripture is, purpose, is properly interpreted by looking for other portions of Scripture that illuminate what we're reading. And fortunately today, two of the difficulties that we would be faced with in this chapter are actually dealt with elsewhere in the same chapter we have read. Uh, as we saw, see in verse 15, many waters upon which the harlot sits refers to peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And we're also told in verse 18 that the harlot is a great city, the city of Babylon. So with a couple of the terms out of the way, let's go and look and see what the rest of this section of Scripture means. Clearly to understand this, we have to understand who the harlot is. And as is so often the case with this book, understanding teachings of the Old Testament are the illuminating guide that will help us to understand. We see many times in the Old Testament that God explains idolatry through sexual wrongdoing. We see in Isaiah 23 with reference to Tyre. Uh, take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute, make sweet melody, sing many songs, that you may be remembered. And at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages, and will prostitute herself again with the kings of the world on the faces of the earth. We also see in Ezekiel that Israel is rebuked for its improper worship of God, for its idolatry. We read in Ezekiel 16, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because your renown and because of your renown, and lavished your whoring on any passers-by, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like was never seen, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them you played the whore. So here we see God talking to the nation of Israel that they have taken the gifts that God has bestowed upon them, and they have taken them and they are using them to worship things apart from God, to worship themselves or other foreign gods. There are many other passages that talk about this linkage, and it's insightful for us to understand what is being talked about here. We as humans cannot be the proper recipients of worship. But we do understand the deep relationship between a man and a woman in a God-designed marriage. In many ways, marital infidelity in a Christian relationship is as close as we can come on earth to understanding what it means when we worship a false god, when we leave our first love, Christ, to worship other things or ourselves. Here we see this married woman not only being unfaithful to her husband, but also selling herself to the kings of the world. Hosea is another example where we see this throughout this chapter. The beginning of Hosea, we see 
God saying, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, take of yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So I, I think we've seen here this tie between the two and understanding that much of the sexual imagery in this chapter has to do with the fact that we as creatures are not worshiping that which we were intended to do. Uh, pagan religions often incorporate sex into their religious practices. Uh, we saw this especially in first century Rome. We covered it in the second chapter of Revelation with uh, the church at Thyatira. As we were told, um, this church was being condemned by Christ because they tolerated that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants in practices of immorality, sexual immorality and eating of sacrifices to idols. Now, as the apologist Ravi Zacharias has said, God created man in his image, and we have ungratefully returned that favor forever. Once again, we see the focus is on man, and often our biggest temptation is to worship ourselves. So we can see that this great harlot is involved in illicit activity with the kings of the earth. This involvement doesn't necessarily just include false worship. It also, but that is what is at root, we'll see in the remainder of this chapter and next week in chapter 18 that, I'm not having to preach, um, <laughs> that this includes the entire world system. It is the entire system that is opposed to the rule and law of God. Um, the world system that we have in view here is Rome. As we will see, it's not just Rome. It will extend to others throughout time. There was also, but there was much about Rome, while there was much about Rome that was repugnant, there was much that was good if you lived there. There was great administration. There was peace from rival gangs, the Pax Romana. There was efficient administration. There was vastly expanded trade. And there was wealth. So there were many, many things that were seen as beneficial. When Rome was a republic, it was a little easier for those early Christians. But during the time between Christ's birth and uh, the time John wrote this, Rome transitioned. It came, went from being a republic to a, a emperor who demanded worship, who claimed that he was divine. And that put great issues in front of Christians. They had to choose. They were in a death trap. Either they worshipped Rome or they were in physical danger. We saw back in chapter 2 and 3 that many of these Christians were trying to have it both ways. They were trying to do just enough to stay acceptable to the culture, but not violating God's laws. As with all the Old Testament passages we read about idolatry, the key is a heart issue. Who was Israel worshiping? Who are we worshiping? They have taken their treasures that should have been in heaven, and they had invested in treasures that are on earth. And while it's an uncomfortable question to ask, it's a question that we must ask ourselves on a regular basis. Where are our treasures? What do we trust? Is our trust in ourselves, our spouse, our government, our job? 
It's a very difficult question, and it's very uncomfortable, but it is one that we need to ask often, and we need to be honest with ourselves. One last thing we need to consider in this section is who were those who dwell on the earth and made drunk with the wine of her immorality? Now, we've seen this phrase several times in Revelation, and it doesn't necessarily mean every human on earth. It means those who are comfortable on earth, who have bought into the world system, those who are of the world. In many ways, we talk about this each month when we have communion. This would be another way of looking at non-repentant sinners. We've bought into the world system. Our faith is not in Christ. Our faith is in things here on earth. People that have turned away from their first love. John proceeds then to give us a little more information on this woman in the next uh, three verses, in verses 3 through 6. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. It was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hands a golden cup full of abominations of the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. We've seen this beast before. We've seen him in Revelations 13. We've seen it as a combination of the beasts that are in Daniel 7. Notice that the woman is sitting on the beast. There's no implication here that she's riding the beast. And if you're like me, you understand the feeling that the few times I've been on a horse, I've known who was in control, and I knew it wasn't me. So in this passage, regardless of what the prostitute may think, she will soon learn who is truly in control. And it's not her. Notice something else in these four verses. They cover the primal motivation of mortal man, of sinful man, Luxury, sex, and power. It's all here in one package. And the motivation of this all is satanic. If you notice, she was drunk with the blood of the saints. So while it may seem to be something that you do or something that is innocent, we must understand the motivation behind things that are going on. We know from our earlier studies that the Asian Christians to whom this book was addressed would have identified immediately first century Rome. It's also likely that they would, would have remembered from the books we call the Old Testament that the original Babylon destroyed the first temple of God. And just about 30 years before this was written, the new Babylon, Rome, had destroyed the second temple at Jerusalem. So they would have had a, much, a very clear picture of this force and its antagonism towards God. The blasphemous names that were written on the forehead, or written on the beast, would likely have been seen by the first century Christians as the newly, if you will, in the last hundred years, uh, new process of the emperors claiming divinity, wanting worship, telling people that worshiping them or they would not live. And as we know from other portions of Scripture. The colors of purple and scarlet were expensive because of the production cost. 
they combined with the golden cup are symbols of the great wealth that had been produced in the Roman Empire. The same was true of the Babylonian Empire. It had amazing wealth. Uh, Kelly and I had the privilege uh, about a year ago of spending some time at the British Museum and looking at some of the treasures that we still have from the Babylonian Empire. These were very successful in man's eyes, but very antagonistic towards God. As far as the name on the forehead of the prostitute, um, this also was not unusual. The historian Seneca, who was a contemporary with John, tells us that high-priced prostitutes or courtesans would often have a name on their headbands so they could be recognized, sort of like a business card. Um, those to, the ones that were lower-ranked or didn't have as much money would simply have a sign out in front of their places of business. So these would have been easily recognizable things to them. One thing that cannot be missed in this beast, I'm sorry, in this passage, is that the woman is the mother of prostitutes. First century Rome is clearly in view here, but there are many others throughout history that have done the same thing. Won't go into the arguments for it, but certainly you look at something like what we were just looking at with Auschwitz, you see a huge outpouring of ungodliness. Um, excuse me a second before I start coughing. <clears throat> While verse 6 certainly reminded the first century readers of the terrible persecutions under Nero, they'd happened 20 or 30 years before this book was written. Just as Frank prayed, we cannot forget that millions, even today, suffer because they claim the name of Christ. The blood of the martyrs is not a cup that was full in the first century. It has continued to be filled and will continue to be filled until the end of this age. I find it a, found it a great relief to know that John was confused and marveled here because I was sort of lost, but apparently the angel thought we should have understood what was going on already. So let's read the next section, um, verses 7 through 13. The angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with a beast. They are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Well, this is straightforward. I think we should just get out our end times Sudoku puzzle and fill it out. Uh, before we go down that road, let's take a quick aside. Uh, the name of that game, which I hope you guys are familiar with, it's a 
game that's like anything else, has simple rules, can take a long time, absorb your mind. It's really good for long airplane flights. Um, but the name sounds Asian. It, it's actually not. It was invented by an early 18th century historian or mathematician uh, named Leonard Euler. And many of you may remember, probably not very fondly, his equations from high school or from college. <laughs> but one thing you may not have known was that he, just like scientist Isaac Newton, were committed Christians. And he, in particular, was very insistent on the inerrancy of Scripture. He was very vocal about his faith. So keep this in mind when your teachers or your professors are insinuating to you that intelligent people don't believe what we see in Scripture, that they, everybody buys into the modern Babylon. It's not true. There have been many people, and uh, I'm not sure who was having trouble with Euler over there, but uh, it's completely understandable. Okay, so what do we really do with this section of Scripture other than punt, uh, which isn't an option? Many Christians throughout the ages have really worked to take the numbers that are here, the men, and either align emperors of Rome or ancient civilizations into something that makes sense. But as Pastor Silvernell so eloquently discussed last week, that misses the larger implications of Scripture. And if you didn't hear last week's, or if you couldn't write fast enough to keep, your, keep up with your notes, I strongly encourage you to go to the website, download the text and read it again, download the audio and listen to it again. But we need to understand that in symbolic literature, we un- need to understand the symbolism. Some of this passage is probably fairly obvious. Um, but we have to remember our history lessons. The seven hills would be immediately recognized to them as Rome. Rome at this time had already been in existence for hundreds of years. And even 100 BC, uh, I think it was Cicero, I forget which one of the historians, had written about the seven hills of Rome. So that passage would easily have been recognizable to them. Another um, that comes to mind Excuse me. Another thing that we need to keep in mind is these numbers are talking about the power and the totality of man in its attempts to battle God. And we'll see in a little while that this really is the picture that we are painted here. Another phrase that sounds very familiar we see in verse 8. And when it references the beast, it says, It was, and it is not, and it is to come. This sounds very much like something we've seen a couple of other times in this book. In chapter 1, verse 4, we read, Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Again, in the fourth chapter, we read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So here we have the beast, whose power on earth seems immense. And he's just the antithesis of God. He's taken everything and twisted it. We see that um, we know that Satan was defeated by Christ with his death on the cross. We know that Satan has been constrained, but that he will be released for a little while at the end of the age. And that in the terrible final days of judgment, this restraint will be removed for a short time. We see that in a lot of the judgments. So what we have here is a picture of the eternal struggle 
between Satan and God and how it is played out often through human agents. There's a lot more that we could develop here. There are a lot more parallels that we could go through. Um, the introduction of the prostitute compared to chapter 21 with the introduction of the bride of Christ. The look at the blood of the martyrs in the cup with the communion cup that we take to celebrate Christ's death. There's much that we can see there that are parallels, but there's so much more in this section, that we, in this chapter we need to cover, we won't develop those fully now. Verse 13 also leads us to another critical point. Uh, throughout this sec section, we've seen that the great world powers um, and the empires, from a human perspective, are immense and long-lived. Think of the 250 or so years of U.S. history. If you've sat through an American history class, there seems like an infinite amount of stuff to know. It seems like a very long period of time. If you look at ancient Greece, or if you look at ancient Rome, these things t seem very permanent. If you go to Rome today, you still see some of the same buildings that were existent then. But God says these are temporary. These are not long-lasting. And that human leaders are here for a little while. Or only for an hour, by the way. That was the shortest time period that was really recognized during that time. So from God's perspective, this is all transient. The entire city of man, of Babylon, will pass away. And then we get to the key part of this verse, the end of chapter, of chapter or verse 13. All were of one mind, and they gave their power and authority to the beast. Finally, Satan gets what he's always been looking for, a battle with Christ. So let me read the last few verses of this chapter. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn up burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal powers to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, hallelujah, Christ is victorious, regardless of what we may think of in human history, of this oppression of the saints, of the death of the martyrs, Christ will ultimately be victorious. And for the believers, for the martyrs beginning with Stephen, to those untold millions who suffer today, for those who will suffer until the end of the time, this is a great comfort. All of those who have been desolate and poor, because they have not been willing to give in to the beast, for those who have not been willing to bend the rules, they will ultimately be victorious with Christ. Uh, we're told by Paul in Romans, and we've heard this many times, I consider the sufferings of this present age not worthy of comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. But there's another truth in this section that we have to look at carefully. The powers of this age will turn and have war against the city of man against Babylon, and they will destroy it. 
Satan is not interested in his minions. Satan is not interested in the well-being of those who agree to work against Christ. Satan is interested in one thing only, and that is himself. From the time that he battled in heaven and was exiled, before the creation of man, until he is finally put in the bottomless pit at the end of time, he will be battling God. He will be battling God and God's chosen. And in verse 17, um, in which the world's rulers willingly give their power to the beast, fulfills God's plan for the destruction. And this should remind us of something we've read in a book that was written in this very city by Paul. Read for you part of the first chapter of the book of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, even since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truths of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, the beast, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. The harlot Babylon promised luxury. She promised sex. She promised power. They may have been delivered for a very short time, but ultimately what she really gave was slavery, physical death, and eternal death. Just as those who took the Gestapo at their words packed their treasures in suitcases and in little boxes, traveled only to watch them burned in the horrible place that was Auschwitz, so those who put their faith and their trust in the world We'll see everything destroyed in the end. For we know that where our treasure is, there is our heart. We cannot build up for ourselves treasures on earth. For the harlot propagates the age-old lie that we even hear today, that work will set you free. But those who are in Christ, just as we've read in verse 14, those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful they know the truth that Christ spoke in the Gospel of John. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So let us strive to store up our treasures in heaven. Strive to avoid compromising in this world that is caused by unfaithfulness to our Savior. We need to earnestly await His triumph and His victory at the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, for his obedient life on this earth, for his perfect example of living in this world, but not being of this world. We thank you for his ultimate victory. We ask that you help us recognize 
when we are being asked to compromise our faith in order to prosper in this life. And we ask that you would give us the desire, the faith, and the strength to stand firm in our knowledge of you. For any who have here today who are not yet yours, we pray that you would open their eyes to see and that you would bring them into your family. In the name of your Son, who is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, we pray. Amen.